welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Throughout the month of March, we have been focusing on women leaders and pastors and talking about what they're doing, what God has called them to do, and ways that we can empower them. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Chris Kiesling, Professor of Discipleship and Human Development at Asbury Seminary. Dr. Kiesling did his dissertation on identity formation and teaches a class here at the seminary on women development and the journey of faith. So today we talk about identity, the milestones that are important to a woman's life and how we can think about those theologically. We talk about theories and biblical passages the attempt to map a woman's development, and we also talk about the beauty that is found when we share our stories with others. So let's listen. So Dr. Kiesling, I'm very grateful to get to talk to you today about your class on women and their faith journey, women development and the journey of faith. And so we're not just going to talk about your class, of course, but a variety of topics related to that, too. So I'm just very grateful for your time today. My pleasure, Heidi. Thank you. Yeah. So what um, piqued your interest in this topic in the very beginning? Yeah, I think like um, a lot of vocational callings, there's probably early influences that then get uh, reinforced um, throughout my academic life. So I'd have to say that having a, a very influential mother was probably the origins of uh, being interested in women and their uh, their developmental kind of journeys. But I think there were some, uh, some real significant kind of events that happened along the way. Um, I grew up in a, a Lutheran church, and so uh, it was a very conservative church, and the questions there were not whether women could uh, could preach. We were asking questions about whether women could light candles and be acolytes in the uh, the service, and uh, and whether they could wear uh, wear pants to uh, to worship. So I think uh, those early upbringings maybe have created some uh, some questions for me later on when I especially encountered uh, a Wesleyan theology and support for women in ministry. Uh, but when I was in uh, graduate school, I was at uh, Texas Tech doing a degree in human development family studies, and the um, the mentor for my dissertation was also the head of the women's studies department. Okay. And so there were places at which um, her particular academic interest also uh, fueled some of the, uh, not only the classes that I was to take, but also uh, created a methodology that allowed me to uh, to look deeper into the uh, the study of women. So as a uh, as a student of human development, um, almost any kind of academic uh, study that we came across was always asking questions about uh, are there gender differences that show up? And so simply my inquisitiveness about uh, half of the population became uh, significant in in that regard. Um, and then I think uh, uh, missionally, as I've tried to become a more global Christian, just trying to think about the um, the critical um, role of women across uh, across the world, and so the plight of women, whether it's the girl child or um, the significant issues that women encounter with uh, with sexual abuse, with uh, with human trafficking, mm-hmm. with uh, the feminization of poverty, um, even uh, female genital uh, mutilation, some of the kinds of issues that show up. I think have a missional imperative for us as, as Christians. Mm-hmm. What's it like to be a man and study women's issues? Because you mentioned in your church when you grew up, it was Lutheran, and they were discussing whether women could wear pants and things like that. Um, I think it's really 
um, is astute the right word? I think it's really astute of you to, I'm not sure that's the right word. Anyway, um, I think it's really interesting that you would think about that as a guy because it was something that totally didn't affect you at all. Mm. And I feel like, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like it's easy if it doesn't affect you to not think about it. So what is it like to be a man and study this? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's awkward. <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, it's silly. Um, occasionally it feels, uh, it feels brave and uh, redemptive. And I think it's increasingly strategic for me. Hmm. Um, and I think it's because um, just uh, in some ways it was just a, a kind of initial exploration that I wasn't sure where it would take me. And so I even started class the first time that I taught it saying, I'm not sure I'm the person to be doing this. And uh, I have no idea where this will take us. But, uh, but in the midst of teaching the class and hearing responses from students, I think that there's, uh, there is something significant in a historically uh, male-dominated profession to, uh, to have someone of, um, of influence and perhaps of, uh, of status um, giving uh, support, um, trying to understand, giving, um, uh, giving attention, uh, calling attention to the, uh, the journey of women, I think mm-hmm. seems to me to be increasingly strategic to, uh, to exemplify that in my own life but also to, uh, to kind of model it for the community. So if you take um, most of the attributes of uh, what's privileged in our society, um, white, male, uh, tall, educated, I fit most of those kind of attributes. And so there were seasons of my life, I think, where I carried that with almost a sense of shame. Mm. But, uh, but I think the, uh, the importance is that when you occupy those positions of influence, can you use those for the sake of helping to elevate the status of those who oftentimes don't share those, uh, those kind of positions? Mm-hmm. So I hope that, uh, that there's a strategic influence uh, uh, connected with it as well. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that, because you were talking about the strategic influence that men can have, what are some ways, because all men can't be professors and teach. What are some ways that men can use their influence to support women or other people who may not have the privilege that they do? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, again, in some ways, it's the comportment of who we are. So, again, uh, how uh, in our daily lives, what, uh, what happens in, uh, in marriages to, uh, to support the dreams and the hopes of, uh, of women. I think in some ways it's, uh, it's giving a listening ear and uh, uh, what you pay attention to and what, uh, what's given uh, significance. Um, I think there are places, too, that um, not restricting uh, well, on a on a uh, kind of more uh, systematic kind of place, the questions of across the world: Do women have access to education? Do they have um, access to uh, to health care? Um, are there places at which they are uh, given the opportunity to um, to dream, to think about what they uh, uh, what they can engage in life? I think all of those become significant kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said something else that I want to touch on briefly, too. You said you carried your privilege with shame, which mm. isn't for the best for any of us to carry shame. How did you, and we can't do what, who, we can't be who we're made to be if we're carrying shame, I think. Um, how did you overcome that sense of shame? Because mm. it's nothing to be ashamed of. You can't help. Your yeah. privilege, you know. I think in some ways it was realizing that. So it was mm-hmm. kind of an ideological place. I think it was sometimes hearing myself uh, preach and, uh, and realizing that what I was creating was a sense of, uh, 
of, uh, of shame in other people simply because I was working on that uh, uh, in my own kind of uh, own kind of journey. Um, and then I think it's to uh, to try to hold uh, positions of, uh, of power influence, not in a way that you uh, you hold those with dominance over someone, but instead try to use those as opportunities for uh, uh, for advocacy or elevating those who don't have the uh, the same kind of privileges. So I think that's helped, and um, uh, I think sometimes uh, speaking about the uh, the sense of uh, sense of self that you carry and having other people uh, speak truth into those uh, kind of places as well. So some of it was I may not have even been aware of, uh, mm-hmm. but I do recognize that I've uh, been in places uh, in theological circles where I internalized this sense that what uh, everybody in the room was trying to overcome was me, whether it was the oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> whether it was uh, feminists that uh, were speaking into uh, against kind of patriarchy or whether it was... Um, a white privilege that uh, was there in terms of racial racial reconciliation, or even uh, um, LGBT concerns. That uh, that as a, uh, a heterosexual male, what does that uh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you did your dissertation on identity formation, is that right? Right. What did you tell me about your dissertation and what you discovered as mm. part of that? Sure. So again, my dissertation used a methodology that was coming out of the Women's Studies Department. And so uh, the Women's Studies Department was keen on studying the lives of women, and so they had adopted a methodology they called the role-related identity interview. And so it began with a uh, simply a circle on a sheet of paper, and we would hand it to, uh, to subjects and say, uh, if this represented the most important areas of your life, divide this pie diagram up into what those, uh, the, what those uh, would look like. Um, as part of the uh, the interview, we would also have demographics, and so we we would ask on uh, an initial survey if you could identify the uh, four primary roles that you play in life. And so, for a lot of women, this would be: um, I'm a daughter, I'm a wife, um, I'm an aunt. A lot of significant kind of roles. The interview then itself would begin by asking about those particular roles. Uh, what's most important to you about this particular role? Uh, have you made changes in those uh, roles? And if so, were those a result of kind of developmental changes or were they intentional kinds of places that you, uh, uh, you engaged? We would ask them if you had to give up one of those roles, which one would you give up first and uh, which uh, would you hang on to? That's a so hard question. <laughs> it was a really interesting question, yeah. And then, of course, when we, uh, when we connected to it also, uh, a sense of spirituality, it really opened up some very unique kinds of um, insights, I think, into a woman's journey. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when we explore spirituality, we do so thinking about what kind of spiritual experiences have you had or what kind of uh, disciplines do you practice or... Um, or perhaps even uh, um, what kinds of uh, engagements, what are the, the locations that you practice your uh, spirituality. But to think about it in terms of roles opened up a whole different kind of uh, perspective. So to give a couple of, uh, of illustrations, um, interviewed one uh, a young woman who 
uh, gave a lot of emphasis to her baptism. And uh, we initially, you know, if you just hear the uh, someone say that baptism was really important to me, you tend to to uh, to think about it in terms of the uh, theological kinds of implications that it has. Well, if you put it in the context of her whole interview, it was pretty apparent that uh, that she lived most of her life to win the favor of her parents, and uh, baptism wow. was connected to a camp that uh, that her parents had been uh, deeply involved with through the years. And so it was really more of her owning this kind of sense of, uh, I want to be uh, favored in my family, and this is what's uh, what's typical and expected, uh, and had really relatively little kind of uh, theological understanding behind it. Or another place where we, uh, we interviewed a woman who was a Wiccan, and um, uh, we were curious, I was curious about uh, how did she come into a, um, a commitment to being a, a Wiccan. As she unfolded her story, it was evident that um, from the very earliest days, she said uh, uh, that her kind of historical recounting of being born was that she came out of the womb and her father looked at her and when she was a female rather than a male, he, uh, he let go of an expletive. And so she said um, that most of the time there was a double standard in her family, that her brothers could win the favor of her father with, uh, with coarse humor, but if she ever went down that, uh, that track, that she was uh, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, disciplined for it or mm-hmm. even uh, just ignored. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of natural for her. She said that she, um, in college, looked for, uh, she explored different kind of world religions, and found um, that very few of them had any sense of uh, the feminine in the Godhead, whether it was uh, Islam or Christianity or Judaism. Um, So she's in a a college class and um, studying Greek mythology and found that there were goddesses in Greek mythology that she could identify with. And so she became attracted to these uh, these Greek goddesses. So there was just this real interesting kind of place of... um, of kind of trying to overcome an early woundedness yeah. in her femininity that uh, that took her almost to this uh, kind of grandiosity of saying, uh, how do I feminize the divine and, mm-hmm. uh, and find it in uh, Greek mythology? So some of those stories just in terms of a, a woman's sense of self and uh, how does it connect for them, what do they do with that, uh, that sense of self, I think became very intriguing to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) How did you then want to go on and be an advocate for women? Hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, So as a... uh as a Christian, I think when I, I theologically, when I think about um, worshiping the triune God, I think that uh, all aspects of the triune God uh, advocate for women. So whether it's understanding the creation story in such a way that at least the way I read the creation story, it leans toward uh, toward mutuality between a, a man and a woman. That most of the uh, all of the creation mandates are given to uh, to both men and women. Hmm. That they are. Uh, imaged in the creation story as being kind of uh, uh, co-caretakers of the uh, the garden. Um, so you get, first of all, the, uh, the God the Father in creation, uh, creating man and woman with uh, equality and with uh, mutuality. 
Then, uh, then Jesus, I think, uh, oftentimes is pictured as elevating the role of women when he encounters them, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, uh, driving out voices of accusation and uh, lifting them in society or giving them a, a prominent place in his own uh, kind of followership and discipleship. Um, all the gifts of salvation are available to uh, to women as well as mm-hmm. to uh, to men. And then I think the spirit that's poured out upon our uh, our men servants and our maid servants. So the the distribution of gifts, uh, spiritual gifts, are given I think to uh, to men and to uh, to women. So in some ways, I think uh, being an advocate for women is uh, is very consistent with what uh, you find in the uh, the scriptures and in all aspects of the uh, the Godhead. Mm-hmm. And one uh, one story that uh, that just uh, sticks out really significant to me. I was preaching once on, uh, I think it was John chapter uh, chapter 4, and I had a, uh, a woman in the congregation who came to me afterwards, and she, uh, this may have been the best compliment I ever got to, uh, to preaching. <laughs> she said, uh, blankety blank blank, Jesus was a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> and, I love that. Uh, and she started to unpack her uh, her story, and she uh, she had been uh, deeply involved in the uh, the feminist movement, but it had taken her to a um, a lesbian relationship to uh, a place at which she said at one point she. Uh, woke up and she was in a, uh, a drunken stupor. Not that that's always where uh, 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 following uh, feminist literature or the journey takes uh, takes people, but uh, but she had wound up in a very deep uh, dark place. Yeah. She said she was uh, she woke up. She had been in a drunken stupor. She found herself uh, covered with her own uh, urine, and so now was finding a way back to uh, to redemption. And mm-hmm. so this uh, this piqued her interest, and so uh, so we met, and uh, she gave me kind of access to her life, and we started that uh, that journey together. Mm-hmm. A few years later, I had the opportunity of baptizing her and seeing her into a, uh, a marriage, marrying her uh, her male uh, high school sweetheart, Aww. and so it was just a uh, a journey I think that encouraged me to say, um, uh, what's here in terms of Jesus's capacity for uh, for redeeming and elevating the lives of women. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that, because when we talked mm-hmm. off the podcast to like talk about doing this interview, you mentioned some theories that you had used in your study, in your dissertation study, and then also some biblical pa- passages that may be what you already mentioned, but maybe a few different ones. Um, so I wonder if we could talk about those theories and how they help inform us, but also maybe a little bit where they lack some completeness. Mm, sure. Yeah, so uh, being a student of human development uh, theories, I was particularly interested, again, in terms of uh, um, how theories are both descriptive, but then they become prescriptive. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. theories attempt to try to say, can we look at the, uh, the lifespan and find out what they tell us about the way uh, that, that somebody lives their lives? But then they also become kind of maps for uh, for how we uh, journey through life. So when we want to say, uh, am I on time? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? We oftentimes look for some kind of place of saying, how do we uh, gauge that? So when a baby's born, a doctor will oftentimes hold up a, uh, a child and say, are, is there speech developing at the right yes, places? Yes. Are they uh, are they physically at the right uh, locations? In the same way, I think we do that even in our adult lives and say, uh, what's the developmental task that I'm supposed to be about? Yes. Am I following the uh, the map? So these, uh, these theories become significant for us in terms of both uh, guiding us but creating this kind of gauge for us. So what I became aware of is that some of the theories that I was most embedded in 
um, had developed out of a study of, uh, of primarily men. So, uh, so Piaget or Kohlberg did most of their studies on uh, young boys, uh, followed them through the, uh, the lifespan, and then developed theories that, uh, that kind of normalized human development. So there were those who came behind them. Um, so Kohlberg in particular developed uh, six stages of moral development. One of his students was, uh, was Carol Gilligan, and Gilligan found that uh, women historically uh, didn't fare as highly as, uh, as men did on his, uh, his assessment of uh, moral reasoning. And so she brought a critique to, uh, to Kohlberg and said, it's not that women are less morally developed, it's that they, uh, they have a preference for reasoning differently than uh, the men do. And so developed a, uh, a kind of a corrective to, uh, to his theory. Uh, similar, uh, similarly, Erickson was one of the, uh, the primary theory, uh, theoretician that I used for my dissertation. And Erickson's theory is, uh, is built a lot on, uh, like a lot of theories, on growing autonomy, on uh, individuality, on, uh, on development. So in Erickson's theory, you get a progression from uh, identity formation, uh, the next stage above identity formation or identity resolution is, um, is intimacy. Uh-huh. And so the theory predicts that um, one needs to get through a process of identity resolution in order to enter into uh, to healthy relationships. So, uh, so Erickson was critiqued um, oftentimes by, uh, by feminist theoreticians that said, uh, for women, is it always that uh, achievement or identity resolution happens before intimacy? Or is there a place at which uh, women are always engaged in the process of being uh, anchored in relationships? And so this process of identity and intimacy happen uh, kind of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So there have been those now who have provided uh, theories that uh, focus on different concepts of uh, of women's issues and bring brought us a, a more complete picture, or perhaps uh, simply changed the uh, the lens of the camera to focus on other things. So uh, so Baxter Magolda is one who's talking a lot about um, self authorship. How do women uh, author their own lives? Yeah. Um, Balinky and a group that uh, is now a little bit dated, but uh, but talked about. What's the woman's orientation to knowledge? Does she see herself as being uh, a contributor to knowledge or simply a uh, receiver of knowledge? Mm-hmm. So some of those scripts then that are provided by, uh, by theoreticians are, I think, uh, uh, really valuable yeah. and really interesting in terms of where they point the camera and what they, uh, they kind of help us to see. What is the relationship, if there is one, between these theories and biblical passages that support women's issues, or at least discuss women's issues? Yeah, I love that question, and it's one that I uh, continue to explore. Not sure I have a lot of answers on, but um, so what? I think studying those theories and, and becoming sensitive to the fact that a lot of early developmental theories were um, were written by men, that they were studies that examined the lives of men, mm-hmm. and then uh, kind of normalized those for men, just raises the question of, is there something in terms of a corollary when we look at, uh, at uh, theology and spirituality? So I think in some ways you have a similar kind of uh, phenomena when you think that, uh, that most of the uh, biblical writers are, are men. When we study church history, oftentimes we're studying uh, prominent men who uh, who occupied the roles of uh, theology, and uh, so is there a, is there a bias? Are there some places at which um, men's journeys get told in such a way that they get imposed upon women? So maybe one of the earliest or interesting kind of places 
would be um, if the journey of spirituality for a lot of men is this place in which they ascend with a particular ego and uh, and at some point coming to uh, to Christ and hearing the call of uh, of self-denial or self-sacrifice that living close to uh, to Christ is this giving up of the self for the sake of the others mm-hmm. uh, it almost kind of slays the ego and calls for this place of surrender yes well, if you start with uh, women's stories around the uh, the world, oftentimes they begin in an inferior status. That uh, that most of their journey has been one of uh, of limitation and uh, restriction, and so oftentimes the issue for women is not so much uh, kind of slaying their pride as it might be a uh, a sense of self worth that uh, mm-hmm. is not uh, not highly developed. And so when you ask the question of what does a, a call to self-denial or self-sacrifice sound like to a woman? It can be that the uh, almost a self-abnegation. So there are some writers who are beginning to say is uh, uh, how we nuance these notions of, uh, of pride, of, uh, of worth, of uh, self-denial. Uh, not that we would ever want to dismiss the, uh, the words of Jesus and the, uh, the command that he calls us to. Right, for sure. But to, uh, to try to understand the story and how are those uh, words uh, internalized and what do they mean, I think has some pretty uh, interesting kind of, uh, kind of applications when we think about the theological kind of implications. Mm-hmm. I remember, too, the story we talked about with the, the giving tree. Mm. And so I wonder if we can talk about that for a little sure. bit. And like, because I think it fits with like the, because the uh, tree in the story is um, female and the tree gives and gives and gives. So, but then I guess what I want to ask is we can talk about that, but then how can women find themselves, if that's the right word? Mm. And you can correct that language, too. I'm totally open to that. How can women find themselves on their journey so that, because giving is important, like service Mm. is important, but how can we find that balance, too? Yeah, love the question. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the interesting exercises we do in class is uh, to take the uh, the giving tree, and um, the background, as I understand it, behind the giving tree is that uh, the author Shel Silverstein was uh, was Jewish, but uh, grew up with a Christian friend, and a Christian friend asked uh, Shel at one point, um, "What do you understand about Jesus? What do you think about to, that, about Jesus?" And and Silverstein took. Um, a uh, couple of weeks and said, let me get back to you on that, uh, that question. And in his response, wrote the, uh, the giving tree. Mm. So um, the giving tree has been a beloved uh, uh, story. Oh, and yeah, so I always book. want to be careful not to yeah, knock yeah, on yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's a sweet book. <laughs> yeah, appreciation of it. But, uh, but the reality is for, uh, for some feminist writers is the, um, the interesting kind of place that, uh, that as you mentioned, the, uh, uh, the tree is gendered. So the tree is a female, and the uh, the little boy who comes to him, of course, is a uh, is a male. So uh, just taking it from a, if you offer a critique of it, uh, the boy is always a taker. Um, he uh, he never arrives at a place of mutuality in terms of uh, giving. The um, the tree is a female. Uh, the boy is given the freedom to uh, to go off and to explore in the other uh, world. The uh, the tree is uh, is grounded and uh, stays in one place. Um, the tree uh, constantly gives of itself to the boy, and so uh, the limbs are are taken off. the uh, The top of the tree mm. is uh, is cut mm-hmm. off. So, uh, in some ways, it, the metaphor of uh, being decapitated, <laughs> having one's <laughs> arms taken off, oh. uh, giving to the point at which, um, in the end, the tree is uh, is stumped 
It's, uh, it's essentially ruined. Its mm-hmm. life is, uh, is taken away from it. And so this would raise some real concerns in terms of what's the, uh, the script that's being told through this particular message. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been some that I think uh, even students object to it and say, um, if this was an image of a, uh, a marriage, it, of course, raises concerns. Yes. But is it a story about a parent-child relationship in which uh, we wouldn't expect to necessarily mutuality but some kind of unilateral giving? Yes. Then maybe there is something uh, redemptive about the story. But at least it, it evokes some really good conversation about how do we think about um, the scripting that we give to women to always be the uh, the caregivers in uh, society. So um, so one particular theorist that I mentioned earlier, um, Carol Gilligan, uh, you asked a question about to what, how do we kind of help women think about their uh, their own development in that yes. regard. Yes. So Gilligan suggested that uh, that women oftentimes start their journey with a, a sense of not wanting to be hurt. And so you think about uh, young girls, especially in uh, in uh, early middle adult middle uh, childhood or, uh, or early adolescence, and how much of their energy is spent uh, kind of making sure that they don't violate the social codes that lead them to feel excluded or absolutely. hurt. <laughs> or absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and displease people. At least that was my story. Yeah, yeah, so. okay, that's a good word. Yeah, yeah. so uh, so not wanting to uh, to displease someone. And then uh, Gilligan predicted that there would be this uh, this moment or this uh, kind of season in which the uh, the script in which they're to live into is is what she called a maternal morality. This place at which uh, what it means to be a woman woman is to take care of other people, and so this place of uh, of coming to this kind of disequilibration or this place at which there's dissonance between um, that I don't want to be hurt but my role is to care for other people, would create this kind of uh, uh, developmental um, crucible that would hmm. uh, would move her to say, my role is to become a, a mother, a caregiver, uh, to look after the uh, the feelings of other people, to uh, to show this kind of care, and so this would take her to a place at which she uh, she would own that uh, that caregiving kind of role. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but Gilligan in particular found that um, the, there was another kind of place at which a woman would sometimes feel this kind of cognitive dissonance. And for her, it, um, it was particularly significant to ask questions like, uh, is it, is it uh, appropriate, is it right to, um, to pay attention to a person's feelings? Is it right for them to, uh, to have dreams? Is it right for them to, uh, to want uh, and ex- give expression to what's important to them? Mm-hmm. And inevitably, she would find women saying, well, of course it is. It's, uh, it's significant. And then she would turn the question and say, is it right for you to feel that? And oftentimes mm-hmm. she found, especially uh, 20 or 30 years ago when she was doing her research, that women would say, oh, no, that feels very selfish to me. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, this next kind of developmental stage was, uh, was kind of saying, Saying, uh, can you bring yourself into that place of, uh, of care? And so this balance of caring for oneself and caring for one's, uh, someone else, or what, uh, what she called caring for truth, became this, uh, this next developmental stage. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about that using a lot of different language yeah. of uh, healthy boundaries or uh, differentiation is some of the language that, uh, uh, that we use in, uh, in counseling kind of places. Mm-hmm. So where does a woman kind of uh, hold on to herself at the same time that she's practicing this care for other people, I think, become a real significant kind of uh, place in the journey. Yeah. I want to ask, how can how can we do that? How can mm. we hold on to the 
care for others and also the care for ourselves. Maybe in some ways, again, like a lot of development, it starts with an awareness. So are there places at which I'm uh, neglecting my own kind of self-care and simply, again, having different maps, different uh, language for thinking about that, Mm -hmm. maybe an early start? Um, I think, again, that what I understand of women's journeys is oftentimes uh, anchoring in relationships Mm, gives uh, some place of that. So... So is there a holding environment? Is there a holding relationship of someone that says it's okay to feel that or, uh, or to, uh, to make that kind of uh, move? Or when you do uh, start suggesting that and it gets ignored by other people, is there somebody that still gives some, uh, some affirmation, some, uh, some place to that? And, uh, and spiritually, I think, it may also be this place at which um, exercising particular uh, spiritual disciplines where you become more mindful of um, the kinds of anxieties that you carry, the, mm. uh, the place in which um, can I, oh, psychological authors will call it uh, self-soothing, um, oh, that yeah. might be an important kind of, uh, kind of dimension. Because I think what oftentimes happens is that in those caregiving roles, um, there's also a lot of societal scripts that say, uh, especially at midlife, you've got to be the perfect mother and you need to have the perfect career. And so um, oftentimes women find that their own, their own evaluations of their lives don't measure up. And so there's oftentimes this, uh, this sense in which I'm not the perfect mother. I don't have the, uh, the glitzy kind of career. And so you internalize a lot of, uh, a lot of shame, a mm-hmm. lot of uh, guilt because of it. And so I think uh, having conversations or having places or people that uh, bless and affirm the journey that you're on mm-hmm. and, uh, and then also give permission to try to say um, – it's uh, it's okay that the way you're living in that, but uh, but how do you also appropriate a sense of uh, God's blessing and favor and uh, and goodness in the midst of that can become mm-hmm. a real important kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've gotten to answer your no. question, Heidi, but does no. that get close yeah. to it? Yeah, okay. no, I think that's really good because I think I'm not at my midlife, but just thinking about just the scripts that I live, you know, I don't, I couldn't write them out necessarily but just thinking about I'm not at midlife but there is that pressure to be like the perfect wife Mm -hmm. and do all these things too and so I think that was just really helpful for me good too so um what are some of the differences between the ways that men and women are socialized (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're just jumping right in (laughs) yeah that's such a fascinating kind of uh kind of question so um I mean, right? We come into the world, and there's uh, there's one chromosomal difference, right? And yet uh, we go through the life course, and there's so many different places that that uh, that happens. So, um, I think what I've learned from human development is uh, about uh, the age of two or three, when language starts, that um, that there's some recognition that a child has of. Um, of gender categories really, and that how they uh, how they begin to uh, to fit into that. So um, so even at that young age, we start to say, um, "You're such a good girl," or uh, or um, "You're being a bad boy." And so there may be particular kinds of uh, socialization processes that are, are already happening in mm-hmm. the uh, the language that we use to uh, to 
talk to uh, young children. What we do know also is that uh, that even the way that we handle children are different. So men will oftentimes, uh, uh, women will oftentimes uh, uh, cradle a, uh, a baby, of course, for breastfeeding or holding them close to the face. Men will toss the child <laughs> in the uh, the air. So um, so the the toys that uh, that children play with, the uh, the kinds of messages that we give to them at a very mm-hmm. early age, I think, begins to create this kind of sense of uh, of gender differentiation. Um, interesting in our society today is the question of, uh, of gender constancy. So uh, literature historically has told us at about the age of five or six, I think it is, that, uh, that children oftentimes develop a sense of that I fit in this gender category and that there's uh, uh, that my behavior should align with that particular sense of what the mm-hmm. uh, stereotype is for that. Of course, now we're finding a lot more fluid categories in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so it's inter- it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. That sense of, uh, of gender kind of constancy. When we come to um, to adolescence, of course, there are different uh, uh, different messages and different scripts that are playing. So we, uh, from a sociological analysis, it's oftentimes uh, we start one class by asking if you're looking at a, a middle school playground. Uh, what do you observe? <laughs> so you oftentimes find that boys are uh, engaged in competitive kind of games, and uh, oftentimes they're about establishing dominance over one another. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some more aggressive kind of play, and oftentimes in large groups, whereas the uh, the girls are huddled in uh, groups of two or three, and uh, and probably doing more uh, face-to-face talking than engaging in particular activities together. Mm-hmm. So uh, so we find some differences in terms of the uh, the gender socialization that's happening at that age. Um, Adolescence and early young adulthood, the kind of messages that we give to to men and women about their sexuality become uh, vastly different. So women are given messages about uh, being kind of the caretakers of uh, of their own um, sexuality. Uh, boys, oftentimes young men, oftentimes are rewarded for um, for sexual exploits or or something else. Mm-hmm. So uh, so very different messages that we give at that particular stage, and then perhaps we could follow that on through the uh, the life course and yeah. say. Uh, what are the social scripts that um, that happen, and what are the result of it? So even the place at which um, I think oftentimes the messages to women have been uh, submissiveness. So uh, men are socialized, I think, to expect that they influence conversation, whereas sometimes women, uh, the message is that uh, uh, that they're to be more. Um, passive or uh, are submissive in kind of conversations. And then there are all sorts of double standards that show up in the uh, the workplace. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have one uh, handout that I give to uh, to students that simply suggests that uh, the d- different kinds of expressions. So if uh, a man expresses anger, how is it read in the uh, the workplace? If a woman expresses anger, what uh, what she regarded as it's totally different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you uh, if you go out to lunch with your boss, if you're a man, it uh, may be that you're uh, you're having a uh, uh, a meaningful kind of conversation about work. If you uh, are you held suspect if you're a woman and go out with your uh, your boss and uh, so all sorts of kind of double standards mm-hmm. I think that show up in terms mm-hmm. of the uh, socialization mm-hmm. process. Are there components that are specific to a woman's identity, or are those components the same male or female to mm-hmm. identity? So now I may start mansplaining. <laughs> so I should probably turn that question around and ask uh, ask you. Um, I think compi- so. Components of a uh, of identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I certainly think there are places at which we could say 
there's a lot that's uh, that's similar between men and women in terms of their identity components. Mm-hmm. But the yeah, the contents of those are the uh, the shaping of the sense of self may be pretty uh, significantly different. So again, it, to go back to the identity interviews that we uh, we yeah. created, so the, the we would oftentimes ask questions that I mentioned first of all about the uh, the roles that one plays within the family, but then we would also ask questions about uh, about work role, about uh, about friendship, about sexuality, about spirituality. So I think you can make the argument in some ways that the uh, the different facets of the identity diamond uh, are very uh, are similar between men and women in terms of that we all per- have those particular uh, mm-hmm. ter- particular facets. But I think there are some real differences then in terms of the uh, the components of those. So um, and maybe uh, uh, one way of looking at identity that I've heard is that you. Uh, you kind of think about it as a uh, that little game where you had a lot of the different tiles, almost like a mosaic. Yes. And so, in some ways, I think we may have similar tiles, um, but the uh, the color of those tiles or the significance of it may be uh, vastly different. Mm-hmm. So, if we ask the question of um, what is a man's greatest emotional need and how does he go about meeting that particular need? I think oftentimes the, uh, that turns us to saying that men oftentimes uh, they have a great need for achievement, for, uh, for prominence, for respect, and will oftentimes find that in their, uh, their work roles. If we ask that of a woman, oftentimes a woman might, so we might say that a woman's greatest emotional need is uh, to be cherished, to be loved, and, uh, and finds that more in a relationship. So there are some pretty significant kind mm-hmm. of nuances that uh, perhaps women, uh, men start with a sense of independence and reach for relationship, and women start for a sense of relationship and reach for, uh, for independence. So, um, so the components may be similar, but the way that they play out in terms of a person's identity may be pretty, uh, pretty significantly different. Yeah. What are the, how do the various life events that women go through, like whether they're single, married, um, have children, no children, and then kin keeping. Um, I think that's a really interesting word. How do all of those, and there were more that were mentioned, but I only listed a few. Hmm. How do those affect a woman's narrative? Hmm. So, uh, again, what I uh, this I can lean easily into uh, to mansplaining and get myself in trouble in terms of assuming that I understand this. So, well, uh, we're trusting in your expertise as a researcher <laughs> and to share this information with us uh, too. So, what I sometimes do in uh, in class, um, and this may bleed into a further question, but. Um, is to ask students to use 3M notes and to put on the the board what are the milestones in a uh, in a woman's life, mm-hmm. and so it looks like one of these insurance commercials when we get done and we uh, we get a sense in terms of where do the prominent prominent kind of events show mm-hmm. up in a woman's life. Mm-hmm. So there again, if there are men in the class, so we occasionally uh, usually have one or two uh, brave men who take yeah. the class along with it. So they also I give them a different color and we uh, we put their 3M notes up on the uh, the board as well. So um, oftentimes there is clustering around mm-hmm. particular life events that are, are similar, but, uh, but some of the things that you mentioned in particular, so, uh, so menstruation, so pregnancy, so mm-hmm. menopause are, uh, I think we could say, unique kind of experiences in a, uh, in a woman's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, let me catch the question again the way that you ask it, Heidi. So. I was just saying, how do the various life events that women go through, and I mentioned mm-hmm. those, how do, how do those things affect their narrative? Sure. So um, 
in some ways we could ask, are there normative kind of life events? There are patterns, mm-hmm. I think, in which uh, some of the developmental stages of life tend to be pretty similar between men and women. And yet there are other events that, uh, that either are unique to a, a woman's developmental journey um, or there are also places at which a um, tragic or difficult life experience disrupts the, uh, the normative kind of life course and creates mm-hmm. some, real, uh, some real changes. So, um, so I think, for instance, uh, pregnancy, I think, is a huge one, right, if you engage the, uh, the mother role. Um, so oftentimes men, when they're going through the life course, uh, oftentimes, the more successful they are, the more likely they are to uh, to have family, and so there's almost this kind of assumption that uh, um, that a woman comes alongside to support a man's occupational kind of journey. So uh, women oftentimes give up more than men do when they get married, um, and women will very seldomly engage in a career decision without first giving consideration to how will it affect the primary kind of people that uh, surround me whether it's my, uh, my husband or my, uh, my children. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so oftentimes there are, are uh, real significant choices when a, uh, when a woman is deciding between uh, marriage and career or especially raising, uh, raising kids. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, uh, the transition when if she has been a mother for the last uh, 18 years or perhaps longer mm-hmm. and uh, launches children and then tries to decide uh, what happens at this, uh, this particular yeah. guard. I think we are uh, arriving at what we oftentimes call gl- greater plasticity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's, uh, there's more opportunities for women to say, can I have uh, both a career and uh, and children, yeah. but historically that's been a difficult kind of uh, place. So what we uh, we found for uh, Daniel Levinson and his wife did a book on the, uh, they first wrote a book on the seasons of a man's life, but then came back and looked at the seasons of a woman's life. And one of the things, again, this was uh, 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. but one of the things they were uncovering is that women who in their 20s decided to uh, to raise a family oftentimes uh, wanted to leave their mark on the world uh, after they uh, they uh, uh, launched their children. Yeah. Of course, I think we could argue that launching children is, is leaving a huge yes, mark on the world. Yes, it is leaving right? a huge yeah. mark. <laughs> but, uh, but nonetheless, this kind of balance of, uh, of do I engage in a, a career of some kind? And uh, so women who, who chose um, family oftentimes wanted to have a career afterwards. And women who chose a career first oftentimes came to their uh, 30s and 40s then wanting to, uh, to have families. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's the case that a lot of women want to do uh, to do both, and mm-hmm. uh, if they uh, have the uh, funding of good um, financial resources and perhaps also psychological resources, that seems to be a, a door that's continuing to open for them. But uh, but it oftentimes is also a journey that engages a lot of. Uh, uh, role strain and uh, uh, men, I think, are becoming more engaged in the uh, in family and in yeah, nurturing kids. Definitely. But uh, but there's also some reality that, especially when kids come, we tend to go back to pretty traditional kind of roles, and uh, women are oftentimes working the second shift at home, where yes. uh, where men oftentimes uh, uh, don't engage as much yeah. in uh, in nurturing and childcare and those kinds of things. Yeah, I don't have children, but one of my friends was saying that they have two, and when they're first one was born, she said, it's great. And I love my child, but my world stopped for, I think it was two years. Hmm. And she said, my husband's just went right on and she was still working and everything. But she said, because of my commitment to my child and everything, and not like he wasn't helping, I'm not Mm -hmm. throwing him under the bus, Mm -hmm. even though I'm not using names, but she said, 
because of things with my child that I had to leave at a certain time to go pick him up or things like that, that, you know, I'm getting passed over for promotions. And she said, it's great. And I like being a mother, but it has affected me and my husband completely differently in what it means for our Mm -hmm. life outside of the family. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. I might just mention too, Heidi, for the men who may be tuning in, yeah. that uh, that w- although we are seeing in some ways more um, involvement in uh, in family, mm-hmm. there are some different uh, dimensions of the way that that engagement is happening. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we're finding that men are spending more time with their their families, and yet uh, the earliest place that we kind of tried to engage that was saying, is that a sense of presence? And so that's an important kind of element. Are you present in your uh, in your children's life? Yeah. What does it um, mean to be present? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. So uh, so presence is one thing, but you can be present and be uh, totally preoccupied with uh, with what you're doing. Yeah. Right. So occasionally I'm walking through the park and I see men who are present with their kids, but they're still uh, answering emails or texting. And women messages. too. To be yeah, fair, like it's fair. not just guys. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, so a, a, another way, a deeper level is uh, engagement. Are you uh, not only present, but are you engaged? That is, are you uh, emotionally available and present in uh, in your kids' lives? Mm-hmm. But then there's even a third level of, uh, of, I don't know exactly what we would call it, but kind of the sense of, uh, of looking ahead and making sure that kids have what they need for uh, for the day. So mm-hmm. oftentimes what we find is when it comes to who's thinking about, do the kids have the clothes that they need? Uh, who's taking the kids to their doctor's appointments? Mm-hmm. Who's uh, preparing the lunches for uh, for the next day? And almost inevitably we find that that's uh, still a, uh, a woman's domain and mm-hmm. a place that men may not be engaged. So I think uh, even when we talk about um, what is the investment in the life of a children, there's some pretty significant kind of gender differences. Yeah. And oftentimes, again, it's the uh, the women who are carrying the uh, uh, the deeper um, and more involved kind of uh, place with their children. Yeah. Do you think, because I, again, I'm only married, I have no children, but do you think it's because sometimes women don't want the man's help? Because I know I've experienced mm-hmm. that, like, in sometimes the thinking ahead that I do just for our own day, lunches and things like that. Sometimes my husband may want to help, but I have my own plan for how this should work. Do you think that affects it at all, or is that something completely different, like, that the woman thinks, oh, I, it is my job to take care of these children, mm-hmm. and I... I might say I want help, but I'm not sure I exactly want your help because it's releasing control. Sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there are places at which uh, even theologically we would say, what's the, the role of a man and what's the role of a woman? Mm-hmm. So especially, I think, in uh, in evangelical circles within the last 30 or 40 years, we kind of elevated a particular version of the uh, the nuclear family mm-hmm. and even grounded it in uh, kind of biblical context. So there are some that would say that uh, a man's role is fundamentally to be the breadwinner mm-hmm. and the uh, the woman's role is fundamentally to be the uh, the homemaker mm-hmm. um, I think we need some broader categories of what it means to be a provider and what it means to uh, to be a, a caregiver um, that uh, that for me I think creates some more uh, um, fluid categories in that regard yeah. so I think there's freedom to say what if we let the um, uh, the relationship determine the roles rather than the roles determining the relationships, yeah. I think, can be a helpful formula. Uh, that came from my predecessor, uh, Don Joy, that would oftentimes Aww. teach that in uh, in classes. So, uh, um, But uh, but I've also become uh, really aware through—I uh, I teach uh, some on fatherhood, 
And, um, and so especially with uh, teaching men who are imprisoned and incarcerated, mm-hmm. that, uh, that I think there's this real reality that sometimes the access that they have to their kids is very much determined by the um, mother of their children being the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's a control issue or whether it's a sense in which uh, if I don't sense that you're highly competent as a, uh, as a man to give the, uh, the care that I think my kids deserve, that I think there are places at which uh, women especially are uh, carefully protect, and, and in some cases, rightfully so, yeah, yeah. the uh, the access to their uh, their children. But we're oftentimes coaching men in uh, who are locked up mm-hmm. to say, um, uh, you've got to be working on your relationship with the mother of the children in the same way that you're working on your relationship with the uh, the kids. Yeah. And so sometimes that's uh, the simple kinds of things of, um, or even with uh, with businessmen when you've been gone on a business trip, um, ask your uh, ask your wife. What have the kids been doing? What do I need to ask them about? How can, and that can yeah. give you an avenue for getting access back into your yeah. uh, your kids' lives. Because it would be hard to reintegrate either way. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So tell me about your work with those who are incarcerated. Oh, so um, this came out of a, uh, a conviction of thinking about the important role of uh, fatherhood and what's mm-hmm. happened to uh, to fatherhood in our uh, our culture, um, and then also recognizing I think that. Um, Especially in Wesleyan theology, we oftentimes, uh, one of the distinctives of Wesleyan theology may be regarding God as, uh, as Father, um, rather than in some other theological streams in which God is, uh, is primarily sovereign. Um, so Jesus' favorite name for God is, uh, is Father, that uh, all of the early New Testament writers uh, begin their, um, their writings with uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I became very intrigued with this role of uh, Father, both, uh, both theologically in terms of uh, our calling God Father, but also the significant role that fatherhood played kind of in redemptive history. Mm-hmm. So we oftentimes talk about the, uh, the patriarchal narratives and these early stories in, uh, in Genesis all mm-hmm. tend to focus upon uh, the, uh, the patriarchs. The, ma- the matriarchs are there, but we mm-hmm. oftentimes don't, uh, don't elevate those as well. So that's also part of this, uh, the women's development classes to give some thought to, uh, to that. But it struck me as a... It's really interesting that um, after the creation story, you have the uh, the story of um, men, particularly who are living pretty perilous or have pretty perilous outcomes in their lives. Whether mm-hmm. it's Cain and Abel or uh, this character named uh, Lamech who uh, pledges to avenge himself seventy seven fold, um, or the uh, the story of uh, of of Noah, um, you have almost these subsequent kind of stories where uh, where men east of Eden are uh, are trying to make a name for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, ends with the uh, the the, uh, the story of Babel. Uh, then this follows with the call of Abraham, and part of the call of Abraham is to become a father and uh, to bless the other uh, nations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it occurred to me that um, that if it's significant that. Uh, in our Christian tradition that we call God Father, uh, how is Father being represented in uh, in culture today? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think we could make the argument that uh, that fathers are becoming increasingly kind of superfluous. That uh, mm-hmm. some of the historical roles that they played have been um, chipped away. And so uh, so men perhaps when uh, one author's uh, characterization that men are kind of fleeing from their commitments 
And mm-hmm. so uh, what we know is that a lot of children are about half of children may be raised in uh, in homes that by the time they're 18, they're in a single parent uh, mm-hmm. kind of family. So I also became concerned with uh, with um, how are men engaging their, their fatherhood role. Mm-hmm. One author that I came across uh, 25 years ago, David Blankenhorn, wrote a book that he called Fatherless America. And he claimed that uh, the fatherlessness was uh, the greatest social ill of, uh, of American mm. uh, society. Mm-hmm. And so you do find that most of societal problems can have some rootage in uh, what happens in the, uh, the father relationship. So there's enormous amount of uh, father yeah. woundedness in our, uh, in our culture and this, uh, this absence of fatherhood. So combining those, I think, uh, becomes an interesting kind of, uh, uh, kind of place to spend some energy. Blankenhorn would argue that if you looked historically, that very seldom do women uh, abandon their role as mothers. Mm. But there are mm-hmm. places that uh, that men historically, and perhaps in particular in our culture, seem to be abandoning their uh, their children. Why is that? Um, the argument can be made that women are biologically connected to their children through uh, through gestation, through uh, through nursing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what compels a man to stay connected to? Um, to his family, what mm-hmm. uh, what compels him to be um, connected to his wife and kids. So there may be also some biological kind of connections there, but Blankenhorn argued that it's really whether or not there's a social script that uh, compels men to uh, to own their role as uh, as fathers mm-hmm. and as husbands. So my sense was we've got a, uh, a theologically authoritative message that can offer that to uh, to men. But we haven't uh, created it very well, or we don't always uh, mm-hmm. communicate it really well. And so I've been working in the sense in uh, in that regard and trying to say theologically, what does the biblical message call men to, mm-hmm. and what's the importance of uh, of fatherhood in redemptive history, and therefore what might it be significant in terms of our own kind of uh, kind of journey. So I think it's just real interesting yeah. again that uh, that God calls this when He wants to redeem the world that he calls this man and, in a sense, takes him through this journey of uh, shaping and forming him to become a father of, uh, of all nations. Yeah. And so I've been working with that some. So it's interesting to hold on to um, a sense in terms of trying to say what's significant about fatherhood and patriarchy at the same time that I'm working on uh, women's development, the yes. journey of faith, and to try to hold those in, uh, in tandem, I think, becomes yeah. a, a delicate but an important kind of place to, to yeah. work. But they're both very important mm. at the same time. Yeah. Um, I want to back up just a little bit because sure. we talked about the milestones that women go through. Um, and we talked about motherhood being one of them because it is an important milestone. But what about those women who can't have children or don't or choose not mm. to have children? And yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, uh, that's a difficult one to uh, to unpack, but of course it plays uh, so significantly in the biblical mm-hmm. narrative. Right, because I think what I want to get at is that I do not want to minimize motherhood in any way, but in the reading I did that you gave me to prepare for this, it talked about motherhood being the noble, one of the noblest professions or the mm. noblest profession. And so that was what sparked my question. And I totally appreciate my mother and all the mothers out there, but there are women who can't have or choose not to have children. And so what does that say to them? Mm. 
Yeah, I think we've got to be very, especially sensitive in that regard. So, uh, so when you open the issue of infertility in a congregational setting, I've oftentimes been surprised at how uh, how widespread the struggle is mm-hmm. to uh, to have children, or even the kind of decision making that's happening there. Mm-hmm. And it comes across in several places. Of course, it's uh, in couples who are struggling with infertility. It happens. I was a singles pastor, and so was surprised to find that uh, single women at about age 30, it seemed, would oftentimes kind of be wrestling with, how do I bargain with God, and uh, and I'll give God a few more years to bring a man into my life, and if not, uh, my biological clock is ticking, and I feel this strong maternal instinct, so how do I uh, go about this? And so the consideration of uh, do I uh, do I go to a sperm bank? Do I uh, do I adopt children? Mm-hmm. Do I uh, enter into uh, to foster care of some kind? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, how women live out that journey and trying to say what are the theological messages that we give? I think are is really uh, significant. And um, of course, there are some real interesting biblical stories. So infertility that gets. Um, answered by the uh, initially the birth of uh, Isaac. So uh, laughter becomes this kind of place of mm-hmm. the surprise of God in the midst of that. Um, other places, I think, at which um, any kind of uh, disability that somebody has may be a vocational calling. And so I think there are places at which uh, I think we have to handle it very delicately in terms of being uh, uh, very empathetic to women who are on that particular journey, or men mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, but to also say that there are places at which, when when something has been disabled, that uh, that there is the place for the glory of God to be manifest. And so, are there places at which engaging that journey in a way that actually calls attention to uh, uh, to goodness, and it's almost maybe a redemptive kind of suffering. Mm-hmm. But I think there are places at which it can lead to uh, to glory. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that means probably needs some more unpacking, Heidi. But that's at yeah. least some initial thoughts in that regard. No, and, that's good. Thank and what you. I've had to do in that regard is almost uh, say that I'm not the person that can speak into it, but to mm-hmm. find narratives of uh, of women in particular mm-hmm. who have been on that journey and yeah. allow what they've written about it and and tell their own story to be mm-hmm. uh, to be what informs it. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned narratives because you recently taught a class called Women Development and the Journey of Faith, but it's on a two-year cycle. So everyone listening who probably now wants to go take this Mm. class can't do it for two years. Um, But what are some ways that you have found helpful for women to find beauty in the expression of their stories? Oh, what a nice uh, way of asking that question, Heidi. so what I've done with the, uh, the class is to uh, create a lot of opportunities for women to tell their own stories. Mm. So uh, co- a couple of the exercises we do in there. Well, yeah. why do you think it's important for women to tell their stories before, oh, we, before you talk about giving space yeah. for them? Um, I think it's because uh, women's stories oftentimes get ignored. Mm. Um, so simply to create a space in which those stories are valued uh, become significant. I also think that what a lot of the literature tells us is that uh, the women's journey of, uh, of finding voice, of, uh, of self-authorship, of, um, of owning their own story and kind of becoming a, uh, a place where they can, uh, uh, can author that. Again, I think we have to balance that with right this kind of overarching umbrella of, uh, of saying that all of us engaged in uh, the Christian journey mm-hmm. are finding our story, are becoming mm-hmm. a part of God's story. Yes. But, uh, but still, there's a place, I think, even in finding our, our place in God's story, in which what's the unique way that God has gifted me to, uh, to contribute to that story still becomes a part 
of that. Mm -hmm. So um, what we oftentimes find is that when we simply create the space for someone to give a lot of thought to their own story, to, uh, to lay hold of um, how has God been active and present in, uh, in my life and in my journey, um, to ask the question that Parker Palmer asked of what's, uh, what's my life trying to speak, mm. um, I think all of that can be its own kind of developmental kind of place of, uh, of recognizing that. And simply uh, because when we start remembering and when we see the faithfulness of God through our yes. histories, um, or we lay hold of those places where there's something that feels unfinished in this regard, it increases mm-hmm. that kind of awareness. So what we've uh, what we've done is to um, a couple of different exercises. I asked the uh, the women in the class, well the men too, but to um, to go through kind of each uh, epoch in your life. So think about childhood, think about adolescence, think about your young adulthood, and draw a picture of uh, that represents who you are, and also who were the the significant relationships around you at that particular place. If possible, find uh, symbolic kinds of ways of representing that, mm. and then we ask them to uh, to unpack their stories um, and afterwards then we invite the class to uh, to not to to put any kind of criticism on it but just to make observations yeah. and so sometimes that uh, that journey can be very interesting so example I found um, one sequence of stories where in childhood uh, this particular student drew herself in the middle of a field with this joyful, carefree kind of expression. And uh, at adolescence, she drew a, uh, a picture that outlined herself and had things written inside of her body. So there was much more of this interiority, mm-hmm. this, uh, this place of being uh, self-aware, uh, but also this place in, perhaps in which uh, some things were censored. And so, uh, so what happens in that, uh, that journey becomes interesting just to uh, pay attention to. Another student who used, um, used circles to represent the significant people in the life and to see who moved in and who moved out of the, uh, the circle that, uh, that represented herself and what was external to that circle and what was internal to mm-hmm. the circle. Um, she drew, uh, she used tears in each of her pictures mm-hmm. and, uh, there were eight tears in the early picture and then four and then two. And so we could see this, uh, this, uh, cutting in half of the, uh, the tears that were there mm-hmm. as she came to this deeper ownership of herself. So that's become a uh, part of that yeah. journey. The other place is that we've invited, uh, artistic kind of expressions in the telling of the story. Mm-hmm. And I was just absolutely amazed at what, uh, what some students have done. So one student that was uh, particularly interested in um, painting and in windows oh, yeah. uh, at the time of our uh, our class, um, uh, she her grandmother's house was being torn down. So she pre- she found a way of preserving the window from her grandmother's house, That's beautiful. and then painted on the. Um, different window panes, different seasons of her, uh, her life. Uh, another that was a seamstress and created what she called a discipleship dress for her daughter. Wow. And so all of the different kinds of fabrics uh, all had symbolic significance on what she was communicating about the importance of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, another student who took a, a sandbox and mm-hmm. buried things in the sand, and as she told her story, she, uh, she unearthed these different kind of symbols that oh, represented wow. important yeah. parts of her life. Um, 
telling the one story through the uh, the four movements of a symphony uh, oftentimes uh, was a, was a very interesting kind of uh, kind of illustration um, so again just some uh, remarkable kinds yeah. of ways that uh, so when you ask the question about uh, beautifying a woman's journey I think especially engaging in some kind of artistic expression makes yeah. this kind of place in which um, as I'm uh, weaving together perhaps my own life story uh, can it be done with the, in a way that's almost artistic and a craftsman kind of uh, craftsmanship? Mm-hmm. And then uh, even as the uh, the master weavers oftentimes take the the imperfections and turn them into something of uh, beauty, I think it's just fascinating to see again how yeah. women uh, kind of uh, compose their life stories yeah. and narrate them in ways that uh, that convey some sense of beauty to them. Yeah, that's lovely. Mm. Yeah, for those of us who want to learn more, what are the top two resources that you would recommend? Mm. I think there are places at which I found really valuable um, the narration of women's stories in the Bible that have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use uh, Ellsworth Callis's book, uh, Strong Was Her Faith, and I mm-hmm. think that's been a valuable resource. But women have also taken different biblical narratives and uh, just done some marvelous things with them. Uh, we opened the class with a book from Carolyn Custis James, who uh, wrote a book called uh, When Life and Belief Collide. And I want to mention this in particular because mm-hmm. I think it, it's an interesting frame to the class. So Carolyn Custis James is a, a, in a different faith tradition, and uh, but she she's one of the first women who... Uh, I- who enrolls in seminary in her particular context. Mm-hmm. And she says in the early days, um, one of the professors says to her, Carolyn, you know, there have never been any great women theologians. Oh, my. And so she's uh, both challenged by this and in some ways uh, kind of affronted by it. Yes. Um, so she goes on this journey of tending to say, uh, so what is, uh, why is that the case? Is it that, uh, that thinking has historically been more of a man's uh, kind of journey mm-hmm. and women haven't? But she takes the story of, uh, of Mary. And Mary we find three times in the scriptures, and all three times she's at the feet of Jesus. Mm. So Carolyn Custis James says, uh, uh, what's the significance of theology for, uh, for Mary? So the three distinct kind of places are very interesting because in two of those she's criticized, once by her, uh, her sister mm-hmm. and another time where she breaks the vial of, uh, of oil. And so um, she's, uh, she's criticized. She's, the, she's at the place of disapproval of other people. Mm -hmm. The other time, though, is where her uh, brother dies, and uh, Jesus uh, pauses before showing up and uh, coming to the... uh, And so now she's uh, she's angry at Jesus, so her disappointment now is not other people being disappointed with her. She's disappointed in uh, in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So Carolyn Cuspus James says, uh, uh, what's the significance of theology, of being at the feet of Jesus for Mary in the midst of that? And so she says Mm -hmm. that, uh, that theology becomes... Uh, vastly significant as Mary lives her own journey, especially at this point at which uh, how does she handle the disapproval of other people, but also how does she uh, handle this place at which she's waiting upon God, in which her own uh, narrative of her life is, uh, is unfolding, and, uh, and, she, and Jesus doesn't show up and doesn't behave the way that she thinks he, uh, he should. Yeah. So uh, is there significance to a woman's theology and how she goes about uh, navigating the own, uh, own challenges in her own life? Yeah. So I think that's a fascinating kind of place. And students have taken different stories. Mm-hmm. So um, a student that took, uh, took Rahab to, uh, to think about her own journey, another that took the other uh, story 
story of Hagar and notices that um, that Hagar, the first time she's addressed not as a servant but as her own name, is when she's in the wilderness with her son, and it's oh, God no. who shows up and calls her by yeah. name. So I think uh, so. One source is um, is thinking is finding these uh, uh, kind of doing a character study of different women in the uh, the scriptures and uh, finding who's written about those and how do those illuminate uh, illuminate life. And then maybe the other would be to um, to pay attention to uh, especially news feeds today, oh, because yeah. I think we're in this uh, this interesting historical moment where uh, women's stories are coming to the forefront, and women are are ascending into different uh, places of power and mm-hmm. uh, and influence and uh, prestige. So whether it's um, the World Health Organization calling attention to the uh, the needs of women, or whether it's uh, the significance of Women in uh, community development across the mm-hmm. world, uh, oftentimes what we're finding is that uh, the key to, in some ways to, uh, to development, it depends upon uh, uh, empowering women in those, uh, those particular journeys, or recognizing the, uh, the health issues that are now becoming a little bit more acceptable to, uh, to talk about. Yeah. So came across an NPR story recently that said um, uh, the mental health issues for women during uh, menstruation, during pregnancy, postpartum, and during menopause are very significant. And about one in seven women uh, struggle with depression in some of those transitions. Mm-hmm. And yet even a lot of our mental health care workers, or I'm sorry, our, our, uh, our OBGYNs are not trained in mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to, uh, to develop this broader kind of sense of understanding of what, uh, what women's uh, mental and emotional kinds of uh, uh, responses are when they're yeah. passing through those transitions. Absolutely. And we need to pay attention to those things, Mm. of course, too. Um, I have one more question, but before I ask that, is there anything that you want to talk about that I didn't know to ask? We've probably been more comprehensive than you wanted me to be, (laughs) Heidi, so I don't think so. No, this has been great. I loved it. So because this podcast is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that can be spiritual or otherwise that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Good. I think uh, if I can mention two. Oh, sure. Please. Um, So I, I I taught a doctor ministry course with Dr. Michael Matlock, and uh, Michael is uh, is Anglican, and so I was just intrigued as uh, he brought up in class several times uh, his um, his practices as a uh, as an Anglican, especially with the Book of Common Prayer. So I've been exploring for the first time the uh, the Book of Common Prayer, nice. and uh, especially uh, praying in uh, corporate kind of settings. So uh, so I don't get to engage in it all the time, but uh, mm-hmm. have just uh, kind of committed at least weekly to uh, to be a part of uh, praying through the Book of Common Prayer uh, mm-hmm. corporately. Mm -hmm. So that's been very interesting, uh, first of all, because the Book of Common Prayer has such beautiful uh, biblical and uh, uh, narrates kind of the whole of the uh, the biblical story in uh, in prayer mm-hmm. uh, and to do that again in corporate kinds of responsive readings have been interesting and then I've also found the uh, the Asbury hymnal just to be a treasure trove oh, yeah. so yeah. Um, I'm not uh, I'm musically challenged <laughs> so I oftentimes <laughs> have to go on YouTube and find the tune setting or find uh, some rendition but especially um, seasonally to try to say uh, how is the Christian year um, celebrated, um, experienced, mm-hmm. and so because so much of my activity tends to be cognitive to engage the affective side of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, what the hymnal offers me has been really mm-hmm. meaningful. Oh, those are great. Thank you so much, Dr. Keesling. For Appreciate taking this time. opportunity yeah. so much, Heidi. And, and again, just the opportunity to uh, to call attention to the journeys yeah. of uh, women. I yeah. hope it's really well, valuable. I'm so excited to learn more, and I know our listeners will be too. So thank great. you. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to today's conversation with Dr. Kiesling. I really enjoyed getting to learn more and appreciate the expertise that he brings and I'm grateful for the gift that his work is to the world. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.